0: This is Our American Stories. The nightmare of modern terrorism in the Middle East took a shocking and radical turn in 1972. More than a thousand miles from the Holy Land, radical Palestinians, unable to achieve their goals through war or diplomacy, massacred 11 Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics in Germany. The slaughter on innocence was carried out on the world stage with nearly a billion watching on television, what the world didn't see was the Israeli response. This is the story of the 1972 Munich Olympic Massacre and how Israel unleashed an elite team of intelligence agents dedicated to justice and revenge. Nearly
1: every week on television and in newspapers we witness a blood feud between israelis and palestinians that has gone on for decades it was in the late nineteen sixties when this cycle of violence began to escalate after the small new jersey sized nation of israel soundly defeated the arab coalition in the nineteen sixty seven six day war palestinian terrorist groups turned to increasingly spectacular acts of evil to get world attention Israel defended itself as it always had, but 1972 would be the turning point. On May 8th of that year, four members of a Palestinian terrorist group hijacked the Boeing 707 aircraft with 10 crew members and 90 passengers, 67 of them Jewish, and landed it in the heart of Israel, Tel Aviv. Soon after taking command, The two men and two women hijackers, armed with hand grenades, a revolver, and two five pound explosive devices, separated the Jewish hostages from the others and sent them to the back of the aircraft. The captain relayed the terrorist demands that 315 convicted Palestinian terrorists be released from Israeli prisons, or they would blow up the airplane with its passengers.
2: Otherwise, I am quite
1: sure the plane will be exploded. Israel's policy was never to negotiate with terrorists or never to back down. Prime Minister Golda Meir ordered an assault on the aircraft. The mission was led by Israel's elite anti-terror unit, commanded by Ehud Barak and joined by Benjamin Netanyahu. Both will become future prime ministers israeli commandos approach the aircraft disguised as aircraft mechanics in white jumpsuits they immediately kill the two male hijackers and apprehend the two females. here's Ehud Barak on the incident
2: it took just uh, 90 seconds uh, before we stormed it killed two of the um, uh, terrorists.
1: Israelis interviewed the two captured female terrorists who admitted they were members of Black September an amorphous branch of the terrorist organization Fatah. Founded by Yasser Arafat, Fatah is the most radical wing of the Palestine Liberation Organization, better known as the PLO. The man who ordered the hijacking was Arafat's protege and Fatah's commander, Aleh Hassan Salame. Two weeks after the hijacking, Salameh's name came up again in connection with a bloody massacre that left 24 dead, 78 wounded at the same airport. Two of the three terrorists died, and the third was arrested. But Israel had not heard the last of Salame or Black September. Here's Benjamin Netanyahu. After that, they realized they can't hijack Israeli planes. If they go to Israel with somebody else's plane and uh, try to extort something there, they'll be killed. So they figured they'd go somewhere else. Somewhere, the whole world would be watching the 1972 munich olympics munich's olympic games were carefully constructed to convey the message that germany's rehabilitation was complete that nineteen thirty-six when berlin under adolf hitler hosted the eleventh olympiad against the backdrop of discrimination and violence was a relic of a dead past the German organizers didn't want the world to see them holding guns, which might evoke old images. No armed guards or police were positioned in the Olympic Village or at stadium entrances. Security costs for the games came to two million dollars. This relatively insignificant sum was not born of miserliness, but of a frank desire to keep security to a minimum. In contrast, the 2004 Olympic security costs exceeded one billion dollars germany cologne airport wednesday august twenty third, 1972 a middle-aged couple wait for their four pieces of luggage to arrive the man dressed in a well-tailored suit hoists the bags onto two carts and heads towards the customs line and the exit beyond the palestinian man is a courier for fatah and its black September wing in Europe. His accomplice, posing as his wife, is there to lend legitimacy to their cover. The couple are asked to open their bags. The husband refuses. He begins to yell and scream. I am a businessman, not a criminal. The customs officials have seen this act before. They point to a bag and ask him to open it. The man reluctantly opens the suitcase. Lingerie in many colors and styles, covers the inspection desk. The officer motions to the man, close your case and carry on. What the German officer doesn't know is that the three pieces of luggage he failed to inspect contains eight AK-47s, dozens of magazines loaded with 762 millimeter bullets and ten hand grenades. The operation is on track. With 13 days to go before the attack, the terrorists have time to kill. They choose nicknames for themselves. One member of Black September calls himself Che Guevara, as a tribute to his hero, the bloodthirsty Cuban communist sidekick of Fidel Castro. The rest of the eight Palestinians take in the sights, make dinner plans, and catch up on sleep. One even goes to two Olympic volleyball
0: games. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story here in Our American Stories, The Massacre at the Munich Olympics. This is our American Stories, and we continue now with a heck of a story. And by the way, you're wondering, well, there's nothing American about this story, but as you know, the special relationship this country has with England, with Israel, with Australia, makes them American stories, too. And our experience with terrorism, the radical Islamic variety, makes us very close cousins to Israel. And now let's pick up where the story left off the 1972 Munich Olympic massacre
1: Tuesday, September 5th, 1972. Day 10 of the Olympics. A bus filled with the sounds of backslapping and laughter arrives back at the Olympic Village. The jubilant Israeli athletes just spent an evening at the theater. At 4:30 a.m. on September 5th, as the athletes sleep Eight tracksuit-clad members of Black September carry duffel bags loaded with AK-47 automatic rifles, semi-automatic pistols, and hand grenades. Where are you guys from? As they are about to scale the six-foot barrier into the What's Olympic village, they're immediately spotted.
2: I know not big English, man.
1: A few tipsy American athletes sneaking back into the village after a night on the town Let's help them over. quickly assist them in getting over the Up. chain-link fence.
3: Here you go. Let's go. I got you. Come on.
1: The terrorists encounter no guards, but to the sober eyes of six German postal workers, the men seem suspicious. They report the break-in, but no action is taken. Once inside, the Black September members change their clothes and load their weapons. With a stolen key, they attempt to enter the apartment housing the Israeli delegation. But the lock won't turn. The jiggling of the key immediately wakes Yusuf Gutfreund, a 6 foot 3, 285 pound, international wrestling referee. The terrorists flip the lock and open the door, but Gutfreund stands in the hall, staring at the masked men as he throws the full weight of his body and strength against the door. One of the terrorists quickly wedges the steel barrel of his AK-47 between the door and the frame and begins using it as a crowbar. The weightlifting coach, a Holocaust survivor who lost his entire family on German soil, hears the commotion and sees the masked terrorist slowly gaining entrance. He yells to his flatmates to run for their lives as he throws himself out the back window and escapes. The terrorists overpower Gutfreund and charge into the room. Wrestling coach Moshe Weinberg is shot through the cheek while trying to fight off the intruders. A 106-pound Israeli wrestler slaps at one of the terrorist barrels and runs down to the underground parking garage as one of the terrorists follows him, spraying gunfire in his direction. He also escapes. Then, the wounded Weinberg, holding a rag on his bullet-holed cheek, makes another attack, knocking one of the intruders unconscious and slashing another with a fruit knife before being shot to death. Weightlifter Yusuf Romano, a veteran of the Six-Day War, also attacks and wounds one of the terrorists before being shot and killed. That September morning, in 1972, the people of Munich wake to the sound of sirens and the rumble of military trucks. Flickering police lights paint the city blue at dawn. The news is breaking all over the world.
2: The peace of what, is, what have been called the Serene Olympics was shattered just before dawn this morning, about 5 o'clock.
1: Here's Peter Jennings with the live broadcast.
2: If I were to guess at the moment at which of the command organizations this group is to come from, I'd be most likely to narrow in on a group called Black September... I was a reporter based in Lebanon and if you were an American reporter working for an American news agency in Beirut you knew all the characters because the Palestinians were very open about many of the things they were trying to accomplish and so we knew some of the players. Didn't always know what they were doing
1: and God knows what they were going to do. And they've taken nine members of the Israeli delegation hostage.
4: It now appears that Black September has tossed a piece of paper out the window,
2: a list of demands. A man with a stocking mask on his face, weird. What's going on inside that head and
4: that mind? The terrorists demanded the release of 234 prisoners who were being held in Israeli jails and also some who were being held abroad. Um, but Golda Meir would have, would have none of it. She just rejected their demands outright.
1: Instead, Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir sends two officials to Germany, one of them the head of Israeli's intelligence and special operations organization, the Mossad. His name... General Zaviz Amir. He intends to help the Germans deal with the volatile situation. Here's General Zamir.
2: We were the first to suffer from terrorism and as a result of that, we were the first to train uh, units to deal with terrorism, you see.
1: Although Germany has no anti-terrorism units, they politely refuse Golda offer. Instead, local German government officials handle the crisis, which is to say, The incompetence level during the hostage crisis will be absolute. By 5 p.m. the Palestinians demand an airplane to take them and their hostages to an unspecified Arab country. The Germans agree, counting on ambushing the terrorists at the airfield. German authorities transport the terrorists and their hostages. The Fürstenfeldbruck Airport.
2: Heading to an airport called uh, First In his book Stateless,
1: the commander of Fatah shared why he chose the Munich Games as his target. To use the unprecedented number of media outlets in one city to display the Palestinian struggle for better or worse. Around the world, viewers hunkered in front of their TVs watching and waiting for the outcome.
2: The latest word we get from the airport is that, quote, all of hell is broken loose out there.
1: At the airport, a novice German police force set up a decoy airplane to lure the terrorists into the line of their sniper fire. But as the terrorists board the plane, the pilots and the crew are gone.
3: This is ridiculous.
1: Little do they know that just 15 minutes prior, a group of 13 German officers from the police special task command force abandoned the plane end their mission, for fear of their lives.
0: He's right. We can't do any good here.
1: They took a last-minute vote. It was unanimous, and their commander supported their decision wholeheartedly. With an empty plane, the terrorists immediately assume it's a trap.
4: And uh, it all went horribly wrong. It degenerated into a battle. Uh, and the hostages were in the middle of this. They were manacled and shackled in the, in the back of the helicopters. And all this time, the two Israelis who'd come over to try and help the rescue operation were standing there watching this, and they impotent, really. They were, they were powerless to, to do anything, um, because the battle had begun.
1: German snipers eliminate five of the eight terrorists in the chaotic gunfight. Oh, my God. But before their deaths, the members of Black September murder all nine of the chained Israeli hostages. The three surviving terrorists are held in police custody. Rumors rage. The media pounce.
4: We have reports now that all the hostages, all nine hostages are safe.
1: The international news agency Reuters sends out an exclusive Wire report. It reads all Israeli hostages have been freed
5: and according to these reports all Arab terrorists have died by German gunfire
1: the good news spreads like wildfire and the world celebrates in Israel relatives and friends show up at athletes family homes with flowers and champagne then just after 3 in the morning the truth finally reaches the media when Reuters sends a corrected message over the wires flash all Israeli hostages, seized by Arab guerrillas, killed. ABC's Jim McKay broadcasts the devastating update to the world. He looks straight into
2: the camera and says, I've just gotten the final word. You know, when I was a kid, my father used to say, our greatest hopes and our worst fears are Mm -hmm. seldom realized. Our worst fears have been realized tonight. They've now said that there were 11 hostages. Two were killed in their rooms yesterday morning. Nine were killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. They're all gone.
1: Jews have been led yet again to their death on German soil. Only 27 years passed since 6 million Jews were herded into camps and murdered. As the relatives of the Munich victims gather to bury their dead, Israeli security officials plot revenge. I think it was a great shock. It was a great shock because it showed you what kind of uh, lack
2: of uh, inhibition, uh, lack of any moral constraints uh, this terror had. It was If it was supposed to break our morale, it didn't.
0: And that was Benjamin Netanyahu still fighting the same fight today as the Prime Minister. The civilized world fighting the same fight against radical Muslims, radical Islamists, More on the 1972 Munich Olympic massacre after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the Olympic Massacre in the 1972 Munich Olympic Games and Israel's response to this horror. In Jerusalem,
1: Prime Minister Golda Meir tells Parliament that Israelis will go after the terrorists responsible. We will smite them wherever they may be. First, Golda's airstrike response looks like previous skirmishes. But this is just the beginning. Golda wants to set a new standard. She realizes Israel can no longer afford to respond and retaliate. The Talmudic imperative to rise and slay the one who comes to kill you needs to be fulfilled to the letter of the law, she says. Prime Minister Mayer authorizes the assassination campaign. They call it Operation Wrath of God. Terror will soon arrive at the terrorist doorstep.
4: Initially, it was the intention of the hijackers.
1: If Operation Wrath of God has any lingering doubts, they are erased by events on October 29th, 1972. Just a month and a half after Munich. Lufthansa jet was hijacked coming from Damascus. The hijackers demanded the release of three killers who survived Munich, and the Germans said yes instantly. The three terrorists celebrate their freedom with a press conference.
0: Look at them. The movie stars.
4: Did you
2: shoot any of the Israeli hostages? It's not important
5: to say if I killed Israeli
2: It
1: is clear that if those who planned and carried out the attack at Munich were ever going to pay for what they did, only Israel could extract that payment. Operation Wrath of God would be the instrument of its revenge.
3: That was the first time, I think, in the history of Israel, maybe in the history of the world, that a state decided to pursue a policy of personal killing uh, in a systematic way.
1: Golda Lights at Chesterfield.
5: Eleven names.
2: Give us the order, and we begin.
1: A committee led by Meir draft a secret hit list of Black September members. Ambushed
2: and slaughtered again. while the rest of the world is playing games, Olympic torches and brass bands and dead Jews in Germany. And the world couldn't care less.
1: We've responded. We sent 70 fighters. to on on her. Airstrikes on guerrilla training centers, that's a response. The, the Israeli intelligence agency Mossad supplies Army, the committee with dossiers really on the Palestinian members. The Number one on the but list the was Aleh Hassan Salameh. Let me remind you,
2: Aleh Hassan Salame. he invented Black September.
5: He is the architect of the Munich murders.
2: These people... They're sworn to destroy us. Because I don't know who these maniacs are and where they come from. Palestinians, they're not recognizable. You tell me what law protects people like these. Today I'm hearing with new ears. I've made a decision. The responsibility
1: is entirely mine. Salame is the operations chief of Black September and the mastermind behind Munich and the Palestinian hijackings. For all his bloody
4: activities, the Israeli media crown him the Red Prince. He was really um, a protege of Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat publicly declared him to be his son, in inverted commas, and um, he was really uh, something of an aristocratic hero within the Palestinian, among the Palestinian people.
1: Operation Wrath of God is underway as Mossad agents fan out across Europe and the Middle East. The first target on Mossad's secret assassination list is a Black September operative
4: working as a translator at the Libyan Embassy in Rome. He had no idea the Israelis were coming for him. He uh, ate dinner that night with a friend um, and walked home to his apartment block. He stopped off to buy some groceries, uh, made a couple of phone calls and then walked into the the entrance hall where he lived when two Israeli agents emerged from shadows and shot him with um, small caliber pistols. Over the next six months,
1: Mossad agents hunt down and kill three other Palestinian terrorists hiding in
4: Europe. They came up with quite intricate, um, sophisticated ways of killing people, uh, including uh, bombs that were detonated uh, by telephone calls. Um, they put landmines under car and under somebody's car seat. Uh, they blew people up in their uh, hotel bed. Here's Bassam Abu Sharif,
1: Yasser Arafat's chief advisor.
2: The uh, PLO
4: at that time, uh, urged all who have relationship to the PLO and their offices to be on the alert because they're expecting that Israel would carry such uh, terrorist operations.
1: By the spring of 1973, Israel cooks up a mission that will strike fear into the heart of Black September and the PLO. Beirut a 1 million person coastal city 75 miles north of Israel's border
4: Beirut is a notorious factory for terrorism at the time of course Beirut wasn't like uh, Europe it was an armed uh, city where they would have been quite prepared to um, attack and kill any any Israeli soldiers that they saw
1: but these Israeli agents will not be seen for this operation Mossad will enlist Israel's elite special force known simply as the unit Lieutenant Colonel Ehud Barak is in charge.
5: We felt very self-confident that we can do whatever we need to do.
0: There's the scalpel and there's the sledgehammer. The sledgehammer's the cruise missiles and the air force coming in and laying down carpet of bombs. The, the the
1: unit is a scalpel. And this operation is most definitely a surgical strike. Mossad learns that three top-level Fatah targets live in the same apartment block on the Rue Verdun just beyond the American and British embassies and the luxury seaside hotels.
3: They were the planners, they were the military um, commanders and they were very very close to Yasser Arafat.
1: It's Israel's most audacious counter-terrorism mission to date. The intended message, our reach is long. We can find you anywhere. The motive deterrence, prevention, revenge. Here's how it goes down.
4: I had Barack turned up at the uh, uh, the commandos base and slapped down on the table the three photographs of the individuals they were going to target. And uh, people who were there have said this murmur of anticipation ran through the room. I told him, these are the guys. They tried to photograph their faces. We are going to
1: uh, go and find them. As they train to go and find them, they realize that a group of young Israeli men moving through the streets of Beirut might easily blow up their operation. So they decide to disguise themselves as couples on a date. The shortest warriors dress in drag, Barak is the hot brunette, a future Israeli general and deputy head of the Mossad are the blondes. The men hide their weapons and explosives under their jackets. The ladies stash Uzi submachine guns in their fashionable purses and hide
0: hand grenades under their brasiers. The idea is show the people something very unthreatening, they won't even notice it and you can walk right by even a police officer as they did in this case. And when we come back, the final installment in this riveting story, the Israeli response to the massacre in Munich They weren't just looking for justice, they were looking for revenge. This is Our American Stories, the final segment in our hour-long recollection look back at the Israeli response to the massacre in Munich, the massacre at the 1972 Olympic Games. Let's listen to the final chapter.
1: On April 9th, 1973, Israeli naval missile boats depart from Haifa Naval Base, carrying the unit's top 16 commandos and rubber Zodiac speedboats. The ladies cover their heads with plastic ponchos to protect their wigs and makeup covered faces from the sea spray. When the missile boats reach the shores of Beirut, the inflatable Zodiacs are lowered into the water. To avoid being heard, they cut the engine several hundred yards from the shore and begin to paddle.
5: A lot of manpower shoot three guys. They were met by waiting
0: cars with Mossad agents behind the wheel. And then they drove them through Beirut, through the city, through traffic. The agents from the Mossad had found out where they lived and had even gotten blueprints of the houses, the apartment, the apartments where they were living,
1: right outside of Beirut. <laughs> a broad-shouldered man in a suit two sizes too big for it, walks hand in hand with Barak the brunette towards the entrance of their target. The other couples follow along while staying in character. The unit meets strong resistance early on from nearly 100 militants guarding the apartments. They engage in a close quarters battle. The doorman runs into the apartment and cries out in a garbled voice. The Jews are here. Within minutes, three of the PLO's highest-level leaders are dead. The soldiers shove piles of paper into waterproof bags and race down the stairs. As the unit exits into the street, they run into a firefight with Lebanese police, who are quickly beaten back. Mossad agents drive the commandos back to the beach, abandon their rented Buick Skylarks, and returned to the missile boats in their rubber zodiacs.
5: It took us the whole operation from the time we landed to the time we were back in the sea some 30 minutes. By the time the sun
1: rises over Beirut, Barak and his men are back in Israel.
2: The Israelis assassinated three Palestinian leaders who all lived in this one apartment building. Altogether, they killed or injured as many as 40 Lebanese and Palestinians. I remember the town was in shock when they invaded Beirut itself, and in the dead of night just stitched these guys in their apartments.
1: The sense of vulnerability was enormous. In Lebanon, the government collapses in the aftermath of the attack. Arab newspapers publish eyewitness accounts of two beautiful women, one a blonde, one a brunette, fighting terrorists in the streets of Beirut, keeping police, army, and Palestinian operatives at bay with long bursts of automatic gunfire. Stories abound, myths grow, yet the most important target and most elusive is still at large.
4: The Israelis were so keen to assassinate Ali Hassan Salameh that they um, uh, searched all over Europe for him. They weren't sure where he was uh, based or, or, or even really sure what he looked like at the time.
3: He was very cautious and careful and moved from one place to, to another, never, never stayed at the same place. It was a very, very difficult target.
1: Mossad agents pick up traces of Salame throughout Europe, but the leads run cold. Then, on July 14th, 1973, Mossad gets a tip that a low-level courier has a scheduled rendezvous with the Red Prince. Fourteen Israeli agents follow the courier to a tiny town in Norway, called Lillehammer. For two days, they do not let the Red Prince out of their sight. There is, however, a junior member of the Israeli team who has her doubts about whether this is actually Salame. But she is overruled. On the night of July 21st, as Salame walks with a woman up a deserted street, two Mossad agents jump out of their car, withdraw their silenced berettas. And shoot the man ten times at close range the woman screams as the mastermind of Munich falls to the ground but junior backup agents make a fatal error as they speed out of the sleepy Norwegian town a lone Lillehammer police officer takes down their license plate number the morning after they drive the same car to the Oslo Airport and are arrested one of the agents who has serious claustrophobia spills the beans on the operation and discloses the locations of many Israeli safe houses across Europe. It is an international embarrassment for Israel. As bad as this is, the team makes a bigger mistake. The man they killed is not Ale Hassan Salame. Here's former CIA
2: officer Sam Wyman. When you have a team that is that expert and that skilled and that well trained,
5: when there is disagreement from one of those expert, well-trained people. History has
1: shown us you ought to listen. Five of the six Israeli agents serve a maximum sentence of 20 months, a slap on the wrist. To many, this is evidence that European governments quietly condone the actions of the Israeli hit teams. But back in Israel, one of Golda Meir's worst nightmares has come true.
4: The murder in Lillehammer was seen as such a disaster um, for Israeli intelligence that Golda Meir and the Israeli uh, government decided to suspend um, Operation Wrath of God and put a hold hold on, on future assassination operations. Mossad hit teams lie dormant for five years. During
1: this time, in 1974, Golda authorizes a hit on PLO leader Yasser Arafat. But low visibility prevents aerial reconnaissance from confirming Arafat's location. The mission is aborted. That same year, Arafat is given a hero's welcome at the United Nations. Just two years after the Munich massacre. Standing right behind him and sharing in the spotlight is Arafat's close friend, the architect of Munich,
4: Ali Hassan Salameh.
1: In 1978, five years after Operation Wrath of God was suspended, Mossad is given a green light once more and zero in on Salame, who is working at PLO
4: headquarters in Beirut. He had uh, lowered his guard. He was following a pretty regular daily routine. Uh, the, the Israeli agents soon realized from surveillance uh, where he was living and where he would work and people he would visit. January 1979. Salame leaves his home in the
1: afternoon and gets into his tan Chevrolet, accompanied by two bodyguards. Two more bodyguards climb into the Land Rover and follow behind. The Chevy rolls towards a rented Volkswagen Bug that is packed with 11 pounds of plastic explosives, equal to 70 pounds of dynamite. A Mossad agent stands 100 yards away on the balcony of her rented apartment and watches the convoy approach. She flips the switch on the detonator as the Chevrolet rolls past. As the smoke clears, the car lays obliterated in the middle of the street. Inside,
4: 38-year-old Aleh Hassan Salameh is dead. Well, Salame was seen as, as almost a, an aristocrat within the Palestinian community. He was, he was uh, revered by many people, idolized by many others, um, and his death came as a huge shock to, um, uh, to Palestinians. He had a huge funeral. Yasser Arafat shed tears and uh, uh, hugged uh, Ali Hassan Salome's young son um, and really uh, uh, was visibly moved and deeply upset by by the attack. The Israelis, by contrast, of course, were completely delighted um, about his death. It is seven years in the making but Israel feels
1: they finally avenged Munich and made their country and the world a safer place. Two of the three terrorists who survived Munich
4: were also reported killed in the late 70s. There's only one surviving terrorist who was involved in the actual attack at Munich. That's a a man called Jamal al-Gashid, who still lives in hiding now. Um, He still lives in fear of his life and thinks the Israelis may try to assassinate him. In
1: 1999, a Hollywood film crew accomplished something that even the Mossad was unable to do. They locate Jamal al ghashi and convince him to sit down for an interview for their Oscar-winning documentary, One Day in September, narrated by Michael Douglas. The almost fully silhouetted Palestinian reflects on the massacre of 11 innocent Israeli athletes 27 years after their deaths. I felt great pride and happiness that I would be participating in an operation against the Israelis. I was finally going to fulfill my dream. Today, he is reportedly hiding somewhere in Africa.
0: This is Our American Stories. Great job on that, Greg, as always on these pieces. And for anybody listening and understanding That things haven't changed in all these years And in some ways, they may actually be worse There's no talk right now of a two-state solution We have Hamas inside the West Bank With a covenant that urges the destruction of Israel And swears by the destruction of Israel And of course, the response from the Israelis The only response possible Hunt them down, kill them To the end. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Operation Wrath of God. The Olympic Massacre in Munich in 1972. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to stories like this and more. is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, one of the best record producers of all time was born in 1963,
3: and Jesse takes it from here. Rick Rubin is an American record producer and former co-president of Columbia Records. Along with Russell Simmons, Rubin is the co-founder of Def Jam Records, and also he established the American Recordings label. With the Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, Public Enemy, and Run DMC, Ruben helped popularize hip-hop music in the 80s. He's responsible for single-handedly rescuing, reviving, and like the story of Lazarus, bringing the careers of both Johnny Cash and Neil Diamond back from the dead. He's won eight Grammy Awards and has been nominated 17 times. Saying that Ruben has worked with a broad range of musicians is putting it mildly. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Kanye West, Johnny Cash, The Black Crows, Slayer, Jay-Z, Dixie Chicks, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Black Sabbath, Slipknot, Metallica, ACDC, Aerosmith, Weezer, Linkin Park, The Cult, Neil Diamond, Adele, Mick Jagger, System of a Down, Rage Against the Machine, Audio Slave, Sheryl Crow, ZZ Top, Jacob Dylan, Shakira, Ed Sheeran, and Eminem, you get the point. Just about everybody, apparently. In 2007, MTV called him the most important producer of the last 20 years. And the same year, Ruben appeared on Time's 100 most influential people in the world. Now, this guy is the real deal. Though you and I probably wouldn't recognize him walking down the street. And he's a master artist, Zen guru, practicing meditation since he was a young child.
5: Music hits us in a really emotional way For me, it took me away in a way that nothing else could. It's just got a tremendous power, the fact that you can do it with your eyes closed. The creative goal in making music is the same as, you know, a rainstorm or just the way the waves hit the beach, you know, there's a a perfection that we try to approximate. the goal. Sometimes I'll go years worth meditating every day and then years of not. Now I'm in a meditation cycle. It feels good. I started when I was really young. It was suggested to me by my pediatrician who delivered me. It just reminds me of doing it in my bedroom when I was a kid. Let's listen to the silence. understand silence that's where
3: the balance comes being one of the most successful and respected record producers of all time in addition to putting out the vibes of a wise spiritual leader rick rubin is truly a fascinating person and don't worry he's also totally normal down to earth and an all-around nice guy he's the dude standing at six feet tall with a beard the size of a tumbleweed Rick Rubin is also a rock star of a record producer.
5: It's not a premeditated thing. I just decided, when I was in college, I decided to stop shaving one day, and this is what has happened. It was not a, I'm going to have this beard, or it, it didn't work like that. So many of the things along the path of my life have not been choices I've made, but just things that have They really just happened. I feel like I'm a
3: passenger. When Rick Rubin says that his role in the music scene just kind of happened, he's being modest. This guy has devoted every waking moment of his entire life to producing good music. Born in Long Beach, New York, his dad Mickey was a shoe wholesaler and his mom Linda, a housewife... While a student at Long Beach High School, he befriended the school's audio-visual department director, Steve Freeman, who gave him a few lessons in guitar playing and songwriting. Here's Ruben on the early musical influences in his life. The
5: Beatles was the first thing when I was probably five years old, four years old, five years old, six years old. The Beatles Beatles and the Monkees were sort of the thing. And then I probably stopped listening to music by the time I was seven or eight. I got into magic and I started learning about magic and being a magician. And then I got back into music in junior high school, and it was, uh, at that time, Aerosmith, ACDC, Ted Nugent, hard rock was the first thing. And then that, that morphed into when punk rock happened. So more the, like I was listening to the Clash and the Sex Pistols at the same time as the hard rock, but it wasn't really until the American hardcore Um, like uh, Minor Threat and Black Flag Mm. and those felt more relatable to me just because of what they were singing about really they were singing about more like personal stuff whereas the English bands tended to talk more about like class struggle and things that we didn't really experience here in America so it it seemed more foreign like the, the I didn't understand why that was something to yell about
3: during his senior year in college, Rick Rubin founded Def Jam Records using the school's four track recorder. Here, he talks about those early days of starting a hip hop record label in his school dorms at New York University in 1984.
5: We were in college, probably 20 years old at the time, and um, I don't think it ever really registered. It was just sort of, we were completely absorbed with music and making music and. The fact that people liked it was cool, but it didn't affect anything that we were doing. Def Jam was in the dorm room for at least 18 months. Both my my dorm room was stacked with records and a full PA system and DJ set up, and it was a you know a tiny cell. It was ridiculous. The initial energy of Def Jam was a more urban version of punk rock.
3: His passion was moving towards the NYC hip hop scene when Rubin was introduced to concert promoter, artist manager, Russell Simmons in a club where Rubin explained that he needed help getting Def Jam off the ground. Here's Rick Rubin talking about meeting Russell Simmons and the impact that it had on his life. Coolest
5: guy, just, um, he's about five years older than me. He already had produced Jimmy Spicer and Run DMC records and Curtis Blow records, mm. and and there weren't as we were discussing there weren't that many rap records in those days, and his name was on a lot of them. Yeah. So it was really a big honor for me to meet him even then, because he was on all these records. You know, I was kid in school, so getting to meet him, um, it was like he was the first person I met really in the record business you know really in the record business and if you if you uh if you compared him to people who were really in the record business they wouldn't think that he was in the record business but from where we were he was actually involved and that was more than anyone you know we knew
3: their first major album released on Def Jam Records was LL Cool J's I Need a Beat When we come back, more about the life, career, and philosophy of one of the most successful record producers of all time, Rick Rubin. This is Our American Stories.
0: This is our American stories. And now we continue with the story of record producer extraordinaire Rick Rubin, who was born on this day in history in 1963. Let's go back to Jesse.
1: This speech is my recital. I think it's very vital to rock That's right. on top.
3: After successfully establishing the Def Jam label with Russell Simmons, Rubin went on to find more hip-hop acts outside the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Harlem, including rappers from Queens, Staten Island, and Long Island, which eventually led to Def Jam's signing of Public Enemy. Rubin was also instrumental in pointing the members of the Beastie Boys away from their punk rock roots and into rap. 1985's Hard Rock, Party's Getting Rough, Beastie Groove EP by the Beastie Boys came out on the success of Ruben's production work with breakthrough act Run DMC. Here's Ruben on his thoughts after working with Run DMC. At the time
5: that I started making hip-hop records, the idea of someday getting to work with Run DMC would have been, that would have been just it they really lived the hip-hop life. They were, um... What's interesting about Run DMC is that the groups that came before them didn't really own the, the hip-hop culture. Like, if you looked at Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, they dressed more like Parliament. Or Africa Bambaataa and Soul Sonic Force. Mm. More like Parliament. Like, their influences were style influences and often musical influences, were more rooted in an older form of music. Run DMC were the first actual b-boys, where the way they dressed, the Shelto Adidas, and the the warm-up suits, and artists didn't wear warm-up suits on stage in those days. Mm. You know, they wore leather suits and feathers. So it was radical to see these guys who looked like they could be hanging out in the park, on stage and singing about different things, and the music was different. The music was more, uh, it wasn't R&B, which up till that time, most rap records were still R&B records with guys rapping on. Run DMC were the first where it was like real hip hop records.
3: In regards to his work with the Beastie Boys, Rick Rubin describes his use of a more theatrical approach to their work. I've always appreciated sort of the theatrical nature of things. And um, that
5: was like, especially in the early Beastie Boys, we were really trying to uh, push those buttons. Um, and we were probably influenced. Like at the time, we were really into Monty Python and we were really into Steve Martin. I nice. always loved pro wrestling. And it's, you know, it's a ridiculous world. It's, it's a very uh, over-the-top, theatrical, crazy world. And... Um, so, those, those were inspirations that sort of filtered in. And, uh, and that's where the kind of more theatrical side of it. it. You know, the Beasties, we used to do really confrontational shows in the Beasties.
3: Ruben tapped Adam Dubin and Rick Milano to co direct the music videos for the Beastie Boys, You Gotta Fight for Your Right to Party and No Sleep Till Brooklyn, effectively launching the band's mainstream hip hop career.
2: You Gotta Fight!
3: Shortly thereafter, Rubin then began his long musical partnership with Slayer, producing Rain and Blood, considered a classic of the heavy metal genre. This was his first work with a metal band, as if we needed another example of the broad spectrum of music that Rick Rubin is really into. In 1987, the Cult released their pivotal third album called *Electric*, produced by Rubin. The album remains one of the Cult's trademark and classic works. In 1988, Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons went their different ways at Def Jam Records. When Rubin decided to leave New York for Los Angeles, forming his own label, American Recordings. Here's Rick Rubin on how he approached creating his own label. No idea. Just music I liked. It was always about music I liked, finding good things, and um, whatever moved me. And even with a proven track record of success producing hip-hop records in New York, Rubin says that there were some who tried to talk him out of creating American records. Pretty much every step of the way, people tried to talk me out of what I was
5: doing next. You know, I can remember when I formed American and being partners uh, with Geffen Records. They really wanted me to make rap records because we had all the success with rap. It's like, why would you do this
3: the very first major project on the american records label was johnny cash's first american recordings album in 1994 a record including six cover songs and new material written by others for cash at rubin's request the album was a critical and commercial success and helped bring johnny cash's career back from the dead here's rick rubin on how he came up with the idea in the first place the way
5: it happened was uh, it was interesting the label was relatively new all of the artists that I'd been working with were kind of young of the moment, first records, you know, or mm. Glenn Danzig had, you know, he was in the Misfits, but this was his first, you know, new band, first record. It was, uh, Slayer was still a pretty young band. They made maybe two independent albums. Mm. Um, so it was a lot of young people. And I just thought it'd be interesting to find, uh, a grown-up artist who's really talented and just who hasn't been doing good work for a while and um helped them regain what they were and i and and the first artist who came to mind was johnny cash and then i arranged to go see him play and and he was everything that i thought he was he was amazing and had basically been discarded by the um you know the country community and written off
3: here's the late great johnny cash talking about getting that first phone call from ruben and meeting in person for the very first time to talk about creating the album.
2: Rick Rubin called my manager, Lou Robin, and said he would like to talk to him about recording me. And Lou's invited him to come to a concert. So he came to a concert a few miles south of Los Angeles. And I met him backstage. And we didn't really talk about me recording with him then, we talked about the record business and what I had been doing and what I hadn't been doing mainly but he said, I'd like to talk to you again, you know, it was getting late, so he came to another concert and we sat back, backstage and talked and he said, I'd like to record you on American and I said, what would you do with me that, that uh, everybody else has tried to do, you know, and couldn't And he said, well, what would you like to do? He said, that's what I'll do. And I, you know, I said, well, I would like to just take my guitar and sit down in front of a microphone and and sing until I found the songs that I wanted to record and then record them the way that that I feel like they should be done. And And he said, well, that's what I want. He said, I want to get the best out of you, whatever you want to do. That's what I want to get on record.
3: And here's Rick Rubin on what Johnny Cash must have thought at the time and how they decided to go forward with the recordings. I think he just thought I was crazy. You know, he really
5: didn't... uh, I know that he liked that I was so enthusiastic on his behalf from the beginning, but actually on the way home from his funeral, a friend of his told me a story and he said, I'll always trust Rick because... He believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. And I remember it made me cry when he told me that. Um, so I just, I saw who he was, you know, I saw who he was and I saw that he'd given up and that's probably why the music wasn't what it could be. So we spent a lot of time together and I would just get him to play me music and play me, you know, sit in my living room, play me songs, play me the songs you love. and. Um, Songs you've written, songs you haven't written, new songs, old songs, songs you remember when you were... He used to pick cotton as a kid. Tell me the songs you remember singing when you were picking cotton. You play me a song. Or what was your favorite blues song? or was your favorite gospel song?
3: The songs Tennessee Stud and The Man Who Couldn't Cry were recorded live at the Viper Room at Sunset Strip in Los Angeles, owned at the time by Johnny Depp. In a rave review by Rolling Stone, Anthony DeCurtis hailed it as one of Cash's greatest albums because of his self-possessed, biblically intense take on the traditional folk songs and Rubin's No Frills production. Here's The Beast in Me from Johnny Cash's first American Recordings album produced by Rick Rubin. The Beast in Me Is caged
2: by frail and fragile bars Restless by day and by night Rance and rages at the start, God
3: help the beast in me. When we come back, we'll hear from Rick Rubin about the few of the many other bands that he's produced for over the years, including in Neil Diamond. We'll also hear from Rick Rubin on exactly how he approaches producing one award-winning album after another with musicians me. in the studio. This is Our American Stories. And how to shelter from the rain
2: And in the twinkling of an eye Might have to be restrained
0: This is Our American Stories, and now back to Jesse with the story of one of the best record producers of all time, born on this day in history in 1963, Rick Rubin. I was lost
2: Until you found me You're the reason for my today Was ten bells tossed Now I sleep soundly Thanks to you
3: Let me see When we left off, Rick Rubin had just brought back the career of Johnny Cash from the dead by letting Cash simply sing the songs that he would wanted to with only his voice and a guitar. The way Johnny wanted it. What a concept, huh? 12 Songs is the 26th studio album by Neil Diamond released in 2005 and produced by Rick Rubin, who expressed interest in working with Diamond, and the two got together several times at each other's homes before going into the recording studio. The end result? Twelve songs ended up being one of Diamond's most successful and critically acclaimed studio albums in years, debuting at number four on the Billboard Top 200. Pretty soon we were taking it
2: serious Me and you underneath a mysterious spell Nothing I could do Suddenly felt like a bolt out of hell I'm Telling you
3: Rubin's influence would extend beyond the recording sessions as the subsequent tour behind the album found Diamond using tougher-sounding arrangements of his classic songs with his longtime backing band and playing more guitar on stage than he had done since the hot August Neither Nights one
2: era. of us trying to hold it down Neither one of us taking the middle
3: ground wasn't how to make sense we were thinking of Just the two of us bent on delirious love Rick Rubin has also produced a number of records with other artists which were released on labels other than American. Arguably, his biggest success as a producer came from working with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, in which whom Rubin produced six studio albums from 1991 to 2011, including their major label debut on Warner Brothers, 1991's Blood Sugar Sex Magic, which launched the band into mainstream success thanks to the hit singles Under the Bridge and Give It Away. Here's Rick Rubin on how things got off to a bit of a bumpy start with the Red Hot Chili Peppers in the beginning, due to drugs. The first time I met them,
5: um, they'd asked me to produce an album two before the one that we did, and I and I met them. I went to a rehearsal with Adam Harvitz from the Beastie Boys, Ad Rock, and I remember it was it was a bad vibe. It was a bad vibe in the room, and you could see that the. the the musicians didn't trust each other. That was the feeling in the room, mistrust. And, uh, and I'd never really been around that before. It was like a, a toxic feeling. And l- later I learned that the, it was a drug thing, but I didn't know, I hadn't really been around that. Um, and then the next time I met them, two years later, uh, maybe three years later, they had all gotten sober. And it was an entirely different experience. There were different people. And um, that was when we started working together, and we made uh, the first album we made was Blood Sugar Sex Magic.
3: The six albums with the Chili Peppers also spawned 12 number one singles on the Billboard Alternative Songs Chart, a record the band, as of 2015, still holds, and various other awards, including 16 Grammy nominations with six wins, with a Producer of the Year Grammy Award for 2006's Stadium Arcadium which was also nominated for Album of the Year. The band sold over 80 million albums worldwide, most of which have been through sales of the Rubin-produced albums.
4: When I was six years old, I broke my leg.
3: More recently, Ruben has been working with singer-songwriter Ed Sheeran. And I was running from my brother and his friends. The 20-something redhead that packs stadiums full wherever he goes. the sweet,
2: still the sweet perfume of the mountain grass down.
0: I was younger then Take me back to when
3: I found my heart Here's Rick Rubin talking about his approach to producing for Ed Sheeran, an approach that he brings to every artist that he works with.
5: I saw him play live, and I loved him live. And I thought what he's doing is so unique and so original. And um, if you took a more traditional track and have him sing on it, that's not what's good about what you when you see him live and um and I thought the closer we could get to what makes him him the better it would be and that was the goal with the songs was what I don't want to know what the version that sounds good on the radio sounds like I want to know what the Ed Sheeran version sounds like you know I want to know you as an artist what do you sound like and uh and what what more maximizing what makes him different than everybody else on the radio instead of trying to minimize and make him fit it's like i don't want him to fit i want him to
3: sound like him if you want another example of the range of music that rick rubin likes and produces look no further than the difference between ed sheeran who we just heard to another one of rubin's favorite bands system of a down wake up wake up Run, rush and put a little makeup You to- Here's Rick Rubin on the first time he saw System of a Down live, and what makes them so unique to him. I remember seeing, going to see them the first time I went to see them
5: play. They played at the Viper Room in L.A. It was packed, and uh, it's, you know, 200 people. And I remember watching the show and just laughing. It was just so over-the-top and so extreme and, um, like Armenian folk dancing with heavy metal riffs and, um you know, wild political lyrics and screaming. It was just, it was crazy music and usually heavy music falls, a lot of heavy music falls into a similar thing. Mm. Um, I'm not going to say it's interchangeable because it's not. But there are certain rules of heavy metal, let's say, that everyone sort of follows those rules. And System of a Down were heavy band you could say a heavy metal band who didn't follow those rules so they didn't have the rhythms that you'd hear in a typical you know you wouldn't hear a metallica rhythm you'd hear a system of a down rhythm which was different like different gallops and different um and it's rooted in their
3: Armenian armenian heritage just because rick rubin liked system of a down doesn't mean everybody else did at least at first.
5: People hated them. I can remember the, the big radio station in L.A. is uh, K-Rock. And Kevin Weatherly is the uh, program director of K-Rock. And I remember him saying, System of a Down is a band we will never play on our station ever. 100%. I don't care what happened. They're not. That doesn't fit on our station.
3: By the same time that following year on that same L.A. rock station, System of a Down was number one. So why did it work with System of a Down? Here, Rick Rubin explains why they and other similar groups like Rage Against the Machine are his favorite kind of bands.
5: They clearly didn't fit, but they were so good that they transcended not fitting. And those are the artists that I like the best. Those are my favorite artists, the ones that they don't really fit anywhere. They're not another in this mold. Um, Rage Against the Machine is another great example. It's like Rage Against the Machine, they don't don't sound like anyone, no one before Rage Against the Machine sounded like Rage Against the Machine. And And a lot of people didn't like them for that reason. But those are the revolutionary bands, those are the ones that changed the world.
3: So far we've heard what makes Rick Rubin tick. When we come back, we'll hear the approach that Rick Rubin uses in the studio to direct artists into creating some of the best music the world has ever heard or will ever hear.
0: And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Their terrific online courses, there are 17 of them, can be found at hillsdale.edu. More with Jesse and Rick Rubin, born on This Day in History in 1963. Yeah. Stories, And we conclude now with our look into the life and music of one
3: of the most influential record producers of all time, Rick Rubin. We've been listening to record producer extraordinaire, Rick Rubin. We've covered the work he's done with just a small handful of the talent that he's directed over the years. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Kanye West, Johnny Cash, The Black Crow, Slayer, Jay-Z, Dixie Chicks, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Black Sabbath, Slipknot, Metallica, ACDC, Aerosmith, Weezer, Lincoln Park, The Colt Neil Diamond, The Avid Brothers, Adele, Mick Jagger, System of a Down, Rage Against the Machine, Audio Slave, Cheryl Crow, Easy Top, Jacob Dylan, Shakira, Ed Sheeran, and the list goes on and on. Another major artist that Rick Rubin likes working with in the studio and has had some major success with is Eminem.
5: He's very hyper critical of detail and hears the music in a very deep way and hears internal rhythms in tracks and writes, his, writes words to, to work on so many different levels rhythmically within what's going on musically to where if we change a little thing in the track to better the track it it might not work in his mind how it relates to what he's saying and how he's phrasing his phrasing is so glued to the music and written that way like just sees it as
3: not just riding the flow it's much more complex but what is rick rubin's approach in the studio working with the talent here he describes his hands-off approach.
5: I don't feel like I want to hold a band's hand through the process. I want to be there whenever I need to be there to make it better. If things are going along in a way where they've got this, I want to hear them get this. And I want to hear it. And then I listen to it after, and then we talk about, you really got it? Or you got it 80%, let's fix this part. And um, it just depends. The, the, The parts that I'm always there for is the basic tracking part which is where we create this foundation to build on and to me that's the key to the whole thing like if that's right you can try a lot of different things
3: and Rick Rubin is famous for getting people to try different things in the recording studio for example when
5: it comes time to do guitar solos I might not like like um, an Slave record I might say to Tom Morello just you know do a bunch of solos and then play me what you play me what you've got and then I listen back and it's like okay these five are really great these others are not good enough let's and sometimes it'll just be do more or sometimes it'll be let's do them together um, it's really whatever's needed but I, but I give a tremendous uh, I trust the artists I work with and I I like them to feel like they're making this thing themselves. I don't want them to feel like they're making my record. I want them to feel like this is their record and to be invested in it in a in a very personal way. It's different, it's different when you... And, and I've had that early in my career, that was a flaw of the way I worked, was that I wanted it my way, you know? And it led to not good relationships with the early bands I worked with because it had to be my way. And I've learned through Uh, making a lot of records and collaborating that it can be much better than my way. I didn't know that in the beginning. Now I know I have a way, but it may not be the best way. And I want to hear everybody else's way, maybe before I even suggest my way, because member number two's idea is the best idea.
3: Another habit that Rick Rubin practices in the studio is being careful with judgment of people's descriptions of the music that they want to create.
5: We never try to judge an idea based on the description of the idea. We always musically try an idea, which is its a pretty important point. It's very difficult to explain a musical idea. If I tell you something I'm hearing and I describe it to you, the thing you hear is going to be completely different than the thing I'm hearing. So we never rely on that, the explanation being what it is. It's always, show it
3: to me. Let me hear it. So how does Rick Rubin get such impressive results out of musicians? What's his process? He says, it's magic. I spend time with
5: the artist and kinda see where they're at and uh, imagine, I try to imagine what them at their best is. And um, then try to set up whatever situations we can to allow that to happen is that we really have no control over it happening, is the reality. It's a, it's a frustrating job in many respects, because uh, it's like fishing. You can go out fishing, but you can't say, I'm going to catch three fish today. You know, it's like there's, we have very little control over this process. It's magic, really. It's like setting up an expectation that we really can make a great Black Sabbath record that stands alongside their best work. I can remember having a conversation with Johnny Cash saying, on our first album, saying, we're going to make the best album you ever made. And he looked at me like I was insane. Like, like how, like how could you even think that way? He mm-hmm. felt like he hadn't made a good record in probably 25 years and had been discarded. You know, at the time that I met him, he was playing at dinner theaters and had been dropped from two labels and nobody cared. So the idea of shifting that... Um, reframing the experience to to not not just well let's just get in let's just do an album Mm -hmm. but let's do whatever it takes for it to be the best album you've ever made what would that sound like how would that work how much work would go into it are you willing to commit to that because it's not easy and some artists don't like it and and I've worked with some artists where it hasn't worked out, where they just are not willing to do the work.
3: And it's not just the recording process in the studio that Rick calls magic. Here, he talks about the importance of and how he gets the artist to open up inside the studio.
5: It all stems from the relationship with the artist and and finding that place where together we're working to make this thing this unbelievable thing, and there are no limitations that we put in the way of that happening. The goal is to create a a setting where an artist can be completely vulnerable and feel completely free to be themselves a hundred percent with no no shame or feeling of needing to perform a certain way or and no expectation the only you know just really a safe place to be naked and sometimes it's you know as simple as not having anyone else, you know, not allowing anyone to visit the studio. Sometimes when friends are around, an artist wants to perform for the friends. And and for some artists, having friends around gets a better performance out of it. Other artists, it does the exact opposite. So it's like really reading the situation, seeing what's right for that artist, and experimenting. So much of it is experimentation. Very rarely do I go in with a preconception of what it's going to be other than really good and know that it'll be as long of a journey as it needs to
3: be for it to be really good. A lot has changed over the years in the relationship between musicians and record labels. Here, Ruben talks about how he looks at musicians who are trying to make it big on their own versus those who sign with major labels. I don't think there's any,
5: much like making music, there's no right way for it to happen, and it's whatever's right for any particular artist. And um, there, I will say... There are, I'm an independent-minded person. Yet, it's v- it's v- there are very few examples of totally independent artists who've had the impact on the world in the way that the artists who have relationships with big companies and muscle can do. And my main concern is making the best music and having. Anyone who likes it know about it and have the chance to be part of that. I've not yet seen the independent side completely be able to take it to that fruition. you know even in the case of Radiohead, they were already on you know a major label and they were broken through a major label so for them to then leave and do things independently, it's different. For an artist starting, again there there are too few examples and even for the for the best examples you can come up with they don't seem to have the same cultural significance musically on the world
3: yet even after all the success all the albums the hits and awards rick rubin is continually starstruck and grateful to be doing what he's done so well over the years
5: i'm really a fan of music and Luckily, I get to work with these great artists and mm. every day. Pretty much in the studio, I have this feeling of like, I can't believe this person is so talented. I can't believe they're this good. You know, I can't believe it. I can't mm. believe someone can sing this good. You know, some of these people you get to meet them, you can't even believe that they walk the earth. Paul McCartney—it's like that guy's alive, walking the earth. He wrote all those songs. It's
3: unbelievable. Rick Rubin's biggest trademark as a producer has been a stripped-down sound which involves eliminating production elements such as string sections, backup vocals, and reverb, and instead just having naked vocals and bare instrumentation. He gets out of the way of the music and lets it stand on its own. A hands-off, let-it-happen approach that allows less to be more and more to be even better, if, if you can bring it. Approaching his craft is a sacred space of magical creation. Rick Rubin is an artist, a leader, and a visionary with a broad knowledge and appreciation for so many different genres and styles of music that's seldom, if ever, matched by anyone else in the business. He's an American classic and easily one of our favorites here on the show, mainly because of what he did for the career of Johnny Cash alone. The rest is all extra. That's good. This is our American stories.
0: And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Rick Rubin, born this day in history in 1963. And the song Hurt, the great classic song that Johnny covered, the Nine Inch Nail song, could not have been possible without Rick Rubin. Enough said.